Welcome to the Farming Matters Conference brought to you by Land to Market Australia, the co-op that verifies on-farm ecological improvement. I'm Rebecca Gorman, a member of the co-op and conference MC. The conference had a really great collaborative energy and brought together farmers, business leaders and academics to discuss the benefits of regenerative agriculture and its potential to provide solutions to global challenges. The four sessions explored a wide range of topics, which we hope provide fuel for your farming journey. All right, well, many of you would know of Gabrielle Chan's work, either through her 30-year journalistic career or through reading her book, Rusted Off, Why Country Australia is Fed Up. This book was the result of years of observation between her work covering politics in the Canberra Press Gallery and beyond, as well as her life on a sheep and wheat farm near a small town. Now, with the added perspective of being the city-born child of a Singaporean migrant, Gabrielle offers a unique insight into the varying stratas of Australian life. And of course, once an author, always an author, <laughs> She's working on her second book on food, farming and landscape. So I suspect you'll all be in it now that she's been here today. So we thank her for leading our panel discussion tonight with the knowledge that if any of you up on here starts to, uh, is, is lost for words, I'm sure Gabrielle can fill in the gaps because she's got plenty to share with us as well. Thank you very much, Gabrielle. Thank you very much, Rebecca. And Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and having been locked away writing a book for the last year, um, it's nice to see faces, other than my beautiful husband, of course. As Rebecca said, I have been watching politics for a long time and so I come to the farming conversation not only as someone uh, on a farm but also from the policy end. So you'll forgive me if I stray into policy questions here because I just can't help myself. I think there's so many great ideas that I've heard today on the stage and just in conversations. I want to start by acknowledging the Wiradjuri people, the traditional custodians of this land on which we meet, uh, and their, their leaders, past elders, past, present and future. I think we've got a lot to learn you know, as anyone who has read uh, Dark Emu and Biggest Estate on Earth and uh, even The Yield by Tara June Winch, which I can recommend as a good uh, read. I'll just introduce our panel tonight, probably most of whom you know anyway. Um, to my left is George King, seventh generation Australian farmer, uh, fifth generation on his property, Cooming Park. Um, after taking over the management in 1996, uh, he saw the productive capacity of the property was degraded, attended the holistic management with the late Bruce Ward, uh, and I guess the rest of his history now. He's profitably running Cooming Park with no permanent staff, and he's got major infrastructure works there. His latest project is uh, an app onfarm.co, a platform to, for farmers to connect and collaborate. So that's really interesting. I'll ask you to welcome George. Hi. 
Next along is Martin Royds, fifth generation beef cattle farmer from Braidwood who runs Gillamatong Beef, um, a regenerative farmer using holistic management, natural sequence farming, biodynamics and permaculture to build soil carbon and diversity. He manages cattle on 1,600 hectares uh, and is underlined commercially profitable. Um, uh, and avoids chemicals. He's chair of lots of different uh, organisations. I'd ask you to welcome Martin. Hello. Hello. Uh, Rachel is someone who needs no introduction really, but um, with uh, her husband Brian Brown bought Eastbourne in the Nambucca Valley in 87, uh, which is a 234 hectare cattle property. They farm conventionally for, for 31 years. I think your farm, farm manager, Mick Green, staged an intervention, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> and they stopped drenching, applying any chemical fertilisers and biocides and began cell grazing their herd. Uh, and they have a goal through land-to-market partners and holistic monitoring to finish um, heifers to sell direct. <coughs> Now, Charlie Arnott, I'm sure everyone listens to his podcast here. Charlie's a Burua grazier, um, just near me, and advocate for regenerative farming, an educator, uh, a communicator, his property. Hannah Minow is managed using organic, biodynamic and holistic grazing principles. He is a winner of the Bob Hawke National, Lands National Land Care Award in 2018. So welcome to Charlie. Okay, so the, this panel was conceived um, to think about what agriculture in Australia will look like in 2030 and 2050. And so I want to start with all of you just sketching out a picture of agriculture, both, you know, just in nine years' time and then maybe what we're heading towards in 2050. Remembering David Farley has talked about, you know, world population, 10 billion. What's it going to look like for the average farmer in Australia? George, do you want to start? Yeah, depending on how we engage with our consumers is how good it'll be. Uh, the better we engage, the better the picture will be. It's going to be good anyway, but it'll be unbelievable if we can engage and inform and educate our consumers uh, it'll, it'll be incredible. So how will it change things though by engaging? E educating farmers, uh, educating the consumers to to demand um, better quality food, higher nutritional density, thus to be looking after the land and paying for it too. So the big changes if you can do that, if you can get education. Food price. Food price, higher food prices, which yeah. we need to pay more for food. Okay, Martin, do you want to have a stab? Uh, yes, so I'd like to see that when we have floods like we've just had, the rivers run clear, uh, that people realise that uh, before, or right now, our assets are all washing out to sea and it's much better to keep them there and use those assets to build nutrient-dense food and uh, that the consumer starts to learn the importance of a healthy soil, healthy food healthy humans. Rachel? Look, I'm not going to have a lot to say later, so I'm going to indulge you all a little bit here, or indulge myself a little bit here, to answer this question. 
Um, because I have just read Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Oh, yeah. And I'm so gobsmacked by how dire it was in 62 when she wrote it, the situation in America. And I'd imagined that it was, you know, paradise back then, and Obama back then, and we destroyed it ever since. Not true. It was in a terrible way back then. And I said to somebody today, I can't remember, Surely, after Rachel Carson, this was out, and I know that DDT was banned, so everything was pulled back, right? Everything became far more reasonable. People understood what chemicals were doing to the land, and it's not so bad as it, she talks about it, you know, in here. And, of course, the answer is no. It's, of course, it's far worse than it was then. So I'm going to give a little bit of a sobering reflection on what... It could be if we don't all act so strongly. You know, I know I'm talking to the converted here, but it's terrifying. So I'm just going to read this little bit of hers at the beginning, just to remind us. And she writes so beautifully, so indulge me here. A fable for tomorrow. I won't read it all, but I'm going to read a little bit. There was once a town in the heart of America where all life seemed to live in harmony with its surroundings. The town lay in the midst of a checkerboard of prosperous farms with fields of grain and hillsides of orchards, where in spring white clouds of bloom drifted above the green fields. In autumn, oak and maple and birch set up a blaze of color that flamed and flickered across the backdrop of pines. When foxes barked in the hills and deer silently crossed the fields, half hidden in the mists of the autumn mornings. Suddenly, there was a strange stillness. Then a strange light crept over the area, and everything began to change. Some evil spell had settled on the community. Mysterious maladies swept the flocks of chickens, the cattle and the sheep sickened and died. Everywhere was a shadow of death. The farmers spoke of much illness among their families. In the town, the doctors had become more and more puzzled by new kinds of sickness appearing among their patients. There had been several sudden and unexplained deaths, not only among adults, but even among children, who would be struck, stricken suddenly while at play and die within a few hours. There was a strange stillness. The birds, for example, where had they gone? Many people spoke of them, puzzled and disturbed. The feeding stations in the backyards were deserted. The few birds seen anywhere were moribund. They trembled violently and could not fly. It was a spring without voices. On the mornings that had once throbbed with the dawn chorus of robins, catbirds, catbirds, doves, jays, wrens, and scores of other birds, voices, there was now no sound. Only silence lay over the fields and woods and marsh. Then she goes on to say, this town does not actually exist, but it might easily have a thousand counterparts in America or elsewhere in the world. I know of no community that has experienced all the misfortunes I describe, yet every one of these disasters has actually happened somewhere, and many real communities have already suffered a substantial number of them. Anyway, I just thought it was, um, obviously today we've had such optimism and a sense of moving forward. And I guess I just wanted to spoil your fun.
<laughs> reality about, you know, as we know, how dire the situation is and how there is no slacking. And over to you, Charlie. <laughs> <laughs> On a cheery note. <laughs> Thank you. Um, nine years' time. So I reckon. Nine years' time. Nine years time. And okay. then 2050 as well. Okay. So I reckon nine years' time. There'll be uh, more of an emphasis on regenerative ag type practices in schools, in some level, in the curriculum, probably primaries and then maybe secondary by then. Is that based on inside knowledge? Uh, I can't tell you anything. About that. <laughs> no, no, not no, not necessarily. No, it's it's. I mean, Kate's bright with a soil story that's happening. Um, you know, Stephanie Alexander. That's not a new thing. That's that's a, you know that's a foundational. Um, not necessarily part of the curriculum, but that's... There, I mean, there's more and more, I was having a conversation with someone today, Tori, if you're here, about, you know, how do we actually get those connections between city and country schools via food and, and regenerative ag type stuff. So schools, um, regenerative ag won't be normal, I don't think. It won't, it won't be normal. It won't be like, oh, I'm, I'm a new farmer. Well, actually, the new farmers might, it might be a normal thing, but we're not going to have, like, a massive avalanche of, of current farmers and conventional... Suddenly, you know, it won't be like a... We wouldn't have hit the threshold, I don't think, by then. Uh, I'd like to think we would, but I just don't know the will. Um, I think that the chemical industry, whatever you want to call them, you know, they will have some pretty interesting organic alternatives by then, because um, I think they're already looking at that already, and they're trying to morph. They've got a 100-year plan, and I'm sure in nine years' time they've got all that worked out, and, and they'll be looking at the current organic industry and how they can get a piece of the action. Don't know how that's going to look. Shoppers will be, you know, Harris Farm are doing their regenerative campaign at the moment. You know, the other big players will probably have a similar campaign by then. It's moving forward, absolutely. But I reckon, you know, hopefully by 2050 there's a bit more progress by then. Anyway, that's, that's all I reckon. So that's interesting to me because none of you have mentioned the National Farmers Federation goal of $100 billion value by 20. Oh, no, then the National Farmers Federation. <laughs> so, so that was a dollar goal, right, for 2030. So why aren't any of you talking about dollars? We're more focused on changing thinking, I think, which is the big thing that's going to make the biggest change is that bit between your ears. Huh? I think, um, and I'm stealing from David Marsh, wherever you are, um, you know, we have had a, an economic relationship with the landscape, and that's that kind of thinking. I think that the economics will... We don't ignore it, and we don't put it aside. It's, it's front of mind, but it's also in combination with the ecological, the social, all the landscape functions. So it will be a, a, a result of a focus on the things that conventional aid isn't currently focusing on. And I, look, I'm not surprised National Farmers, is, that's front and centre for them. That's fine, that's, that's their, their paradigm. How hard is it within the economic model, um, George, you might like to answer this, uh, around uh, the conventional model where, you know, you might get your ag um, agronomic advice from your local um, input seller and then you carry out that program from the input seller and... and I talk to a lot of conventional farmers all the time and they're 
I get the sense that they feel like they're in this pincer grip between two ends, a, a cheap food price and an expensive input price. And I think, Martin, you spoke about this on, on Charlie's podcast, that, that declining terms of trade for farmers where, where the co their costs are rising and the cost of food is, is falling. Do you think part of the regen movement is, an, is a sort of response to that economic equation as well? Absolutely, and I think it'll get more so in the future. If um, you look at the macro world economic situation at the moment, and it's, it's not good at it if you look at the big picture. We're looking down the barrel, the, all those input costs getting higher and higher and higher. Uh, oil, chemicals, fertilisers, transport costs all are going to increase and which should push more and more people into region ag because it's, it's something we can do. We can control those costs and eliminate a lot of them. So I think it's, um, it's de definitely a, a push to go into region and I think it will be more so in the future. Mm. Huge. Martin, do you want to address oh, that? Well, it, yeah, I would think that's why most people are here is because our cost of production were rapidly going up and the money we were getting was coming down and for me that line crossed in around 1995 I think it was a mate of mine rang up and said that that we'd crossed that line and our cost of production was greater than what we we're getting paid and you know we've now turned both those graphs around hopefully we the goal is that we get paid more for nutrient density mm. and so we get paid more and definitely our costs will dramatically come down Mm -hmm. Rachel, how, how big a consideration is the economic costs in running your farm? Because you I, you talked again on, I mean, I've, I've clearly been mining Charlie's podcast here, but um, um, you talked about growing up in the country in England and, and having that emotional connection, but how much of it was kind of the business equation and how, yeah. and the transition to regen you know, has that changed things for you? Only in so far as I am in the process of um, trying to make a documentary on and basically getting the idea of regen out to the ordinary consumer, ordinary shopper who has, has a great choice, has a great power in her pocket, his or her pocket. And I feel a responsibility that if I'm going to be making a documentary about it, I better be walking the talk and I cannot therefore have a farm that is just about a lifestyle. I really have to have a farm that works. And certainly after doing my HM course, I became, I was very confronted about my financial situation on the farm. And I've had to take a major look at that and it to become a major consideration, which puts me a little bit at odds with my husband. But yes, of course it's important. I mean, we're never gonna bring people into this space unless people feel that they can make a living out of it and they can send their kids to school and they can pay their mortgage and et cetera, et cetera. So it's incredibly important that it is a viable, that is as viable. And one of the first things I did when I first went out on the documentary was to talk to these fine lads. And the, one of the first questions, the, you know, the $100 million question is, are you making as much money as you were when you were conventionally farming? And the resounding answer has been, despite Holmes Sackett's report that um, we are 2.5.8 or something minuscule under, um, you're all saying five times, you said, Martin. Yeah. Really incredible. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I am interested in that. But I'm actually very interested to know 
what you think about uh, about this. You've been deep in this whole sphere. What, what do you I've feel been about marinating in it? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, and this goes to a question I was going to ask Charlie. So the economics is one thing, but the thing that interests me is the culture of farming and the and the culture uh, in terms of how farming communities learn and how farming communities change. And in this space, because I spent so much time looking at policies, different policies, and listening to advocates talking around uh, Canberra and lobbyists in various forms, how you get a conversation happening across the two groups. Because I see a lot of great advocating in region, but I also see sh some shouting. And it's a bit like Lynn Sykes said today. Um, she said, you know, if you attack what I do, I see that as a, an attack on me. So, Charlie, how do you cross over that? Because you can throw economics, you can throw numbers, but really at a, at a local level, until I have a theory that until you get people who are doing something differently and and those people have to be you know well respected things change happens slowly right so so have you thought about the way that in in your communication and in your podcast are, are you constantly checking the way that you talk about this stuff and and checking in to make sure you're not um uh, I guess offending people, or you know, straying too far into into territory where you know people are going to be turned off. And I'm talking about conventional farmers here, or are you just kind of blasting on. I was going to say no to the first one. Um, no, I don't often check. I, I guess what I do is I check myself to make sure that if I'm comparing anyone to anyone, it's myself to my previous self. Charlie Massey does that a lot too. Yeah, and I think that's no, because no one likes a loud mouth and no one's perfect and I think that's, that's the only comparison I like to make because I guess in some ways having been a conventional farmer and killed a lot of stuff over many years, that's my reference point and I'm comfortable using that as a reference point because I know all about that. That was me, you know, so that's, that's, that's what I re refer back to. One of the benefits is that when you're talking to a group of conventional farmers and they can relate to you. I'm not some guy who's just going, I'm fresh to farming and I reckon you blokes are all wrong. Mm. That's going to go down like a... Yeah. So that's my reference point and I'm very conscious that I, can, I, I make sure that I'm relatable and that's where, you know, and agree on the yes, you know, start with the yes. You know, do we all, I mean, this is, this is going to be applied for any conversation you have really with, with someone who's, you know, potentially there could be friction. <clears throat> and what, what, do you, what do we all agree on? You know, do we agree on we'd like to you know, be good to the environment, we're all land stewards of the land, we'd like you know, to maintain and improve the health of our farm and our business and our family's health? You know, start with all the yeses and get some rapport, bag the <laughs> shit out of myself, that's funny, then move on, you know? So that's, I mean, that's kind of a recipe in a way, but, it, but that doesn't stop people from you know, having all sorts of opinions about me or anyone else, you know. And that's fine too, because that's, that's their shit, you know. Sometimes is it, is it just down to the fact that you feel comfortable being different? For all of you? How rude. <laughs> um, 
Because there is an element of that, right? You have to be comfortable in your own skin and with what, what you're doing. Otherwise, you can't function in a small community. Yeah, you do it, you're doing it for your family and for yourself yeah. and not for the, to be a favourite in the community. Mm. So you've got to, got to think a bit above that. Mm. And so can re thinking about 2030 and 2050 again, can regen farming feed the world? Absolutely. The way that the conventional farming well, industry is feeding? There's a number of things. One is that if the food's healthier, you don't need to eat as much. Uh, two, most of our medical problems are a result of um, the, the unhealthy food or the chemically laced food. Uh, and that's the big problem that governments are running into, the, the, the multi-billion dollar medical problem. Uh, so I think yeah, we can easily find, we can feed them. And the challenge is that there's such an infrastructure there that we're, we're all combating against. And uh, it's a tricky thing. I used to be politically correct and now I've hung around Peter Andrews too much. And <laughs> <laughs> I turn up and say, listen, I used to poison everything and kill everything and now I try not to and it makes me more money and the weeds have disappeared. And I was at a thing the other day and I said, I used to be a really good rock farmer, but you guys out there are better than... This was a delegate. Boy, they're really good rock farmers. And it, it's, yeah, sometimes you get this. But Charlie, it's you. What was the question again? I was just immersed in that. Can, can Regen feed the world? I think so. Maybe yeah. not by 2030. And, and again, I think that's, that's always the thing that those not in this way of thinking will come up with, oh, you're not going to feed the world. I've got to feed all these people. It's like, and as Martin said, well, it's about how, how do we feed these people? What do we actually feed them? You know, we can probably feed them less if they're a bit more aware about the nutrition factor. As Charlie Massey says, I think 70% um, of the food that's produced in the world is produced on five acres and less, and 80% is 10 acres and less. Um, that's a lot of food, and that's a lot of people being fed in that style of production. So it's absolutely attainable, and in some ways, we have to. If we want to curb the health epidemic, not COVID, but I'm just talking about all of the, you know, the, the modern diseases, then we, we really have to, you know, and it's really the, it's, it's, it'll be the, the thing that'll, that'll save us, really. But, but the reality is we're producing plenty of food at the moment now. We waste 30%. We, we waste it. And then there's people over the, in other places. It's just the distribution mm. is the problem. Mm. After the bushfires, I went down and did some reporting in Koryong. Um, and there's a group down there that got together as a bushfire recovery project and uh, set up... Uh, I guess urban gardens to feed themselves because um, when they were locked in by fire they couldn't get any fresh fruit and veggies. And some of the feedback, I wrote an essay for a, a publication called Fire Flood Plague, it was about 2020, and some of the feedback I got was, you know, this kind of small acreage slash regen, which isn't always small acreage I know, um, is kind of, you're just feeding middle-class populations. Rachel, what do you think about that idea that this is just like for a niche market that might be able to buy food at a specialty butcher or a specialty baker um, where, where middle-class people are allowed to see the chain but actually the single mother in Western Sydney wants to buy um, a dollar litre milk? That's the way she survives. God, these questions are curly. Um, look, <laughs> Sorry. I feel um, 
you know, very sort of inadequate to answer these questions because I'm, I'm, I'm very new into the space and I have, and as, and as I freely admit, I have not been a great custodian uh, as, a, as a farmer and it was basically a lifestyle choice. But I, you know, I think it's such a, it's a very easy target to think, okay, this is just for a middle, you know, a rarefied middle class elite. Well, a lot of trends happen there. A lot of things yeah. start there. You know, I don't think, I don't, I'm not ashamed of that. I think, yes, we're in a position to be able to take these risks that we're doing. It's not the end of the world, certainly it's the end of the world if I fail in this. And therefore it is incumbent upon me to take those risks at this time because if I'm not able to take the risks, God knows there's a lot of people who are living by tiny margins who certainly can't take those risks. So I think it is incumbent upon us who do have a, a bit of a fallback, and it isn't the be-all and end-all, to have a go, to come to these things, to, you know, to get Tony to put us into these extremely uncomfortable positions like being up here tonight and, you know, and have a go about it because, um, the, you know, hey, it's pretty dire. I think we've got to get out of our comfort zones and hope that that filters down and hope that we start something and hope that other people, that it resounds all the way down and people, I mean, everyone's aware of what's going on and everybody's looking for answers and everyone's looking for hope. And this is an incredibly hopeful way of uh, looking at the challenges. And this is, you know, they're very viable answers. I mean, I'm convinced. I'm absolutely suckered right in. And I, maybe I'm being naive, but actually I think I'm being brilliant. That I'm, <laughs> I, I'm onto this. I get it. It makes so much sense to me. And it's utterly thrilling and exciting. And I love this tribe. I love what you all, you know, the fact that you're also ahead of the game, that you're onto this, you know, that you're so eco ecologically literate, that you've all done it for a long time, you know, it's particularly you early adopters. Amazing how, you know, the risks that you all took. So I'm in my cheerleader mode. <laughs> That's really what I do. I hope it makes so much sense that it will filter down. It just is a question of getting it out there so that people actually know. When I mean, I'm at my markets the other day buying meat from an organic farmer and I said, where are you going to bring Regen into space? And you're talking to people about Regen. They had never heard of it. You know, these organics, you know, so it's, it's very under the radar out there, really. And I think when we live in our, in our world, we think that no one else is talking about anything else. But you really have to step a little bit outside to, to realise that it's actually, there's a lot to be done to get the word out there, to make people just understand, you know, have a concept about what Regen means and how much power they have to influence the way people farm, the farmers farm out there. And I think once they make that connection, and we all know that, you know, 80% of people, one of the, their first things that they are concerned about is climate change. Um, someone was throwing that statistic around the other day, so I'll use that one. But um, and once they know that they can influence that by, by the power of their purse, then I think it's a, it's a, it's a roller coaster, hopefully. Mm. Um, how can it not be? Because it's, you, what else is as hopeful as this? So by 2050, mostly region? Do you see a system like that? Yep. The, the soils will be too depleted to go conventionally. Uh, the input costs will be too high and the consumers will de be demanding regen food. Okay, so I'm going to crown all of you Agriculture Minister. George, what do you do to today? Yes, today. Um, you'll 
be going to the government house for the swearing-in later, but what do you do in order to realise your vision for 2050? What are the policies? One or two policies? First thing, personal agenda. I'd um, ban fake meat being called meat. <laughs> right. Yeah, it'd have to be yeah. culture protein. Next thing, I'd put education programs in the school to teach kids how to grow food yeah. and how soils function and um, what, what General Jeffrey was was talking about his, his There's already a George the Farmer, isn't there? Isn't there a character called George the Farmer that yeah, goes into school? Two of us. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So in the school, okay. go into the school program. Schools, thing. so yep. next generation. Yep, okay. so they understand. Yep. Even if they um, even if they try and grow food and fail at it, they'll understand how hard it is and how valuable food is. So they don't have to actually, if you got into Western Sydney and they had a go at growing food mm. with their kids, just, just to learn that it is hard and it is valuable. Martin? Well, I just went to the Beltrees Public School in Scone uh, a couple of weeks ago and they brought in all the little schools from around there. Beltrees has got a total student population of seven. And uh, yeah, but they were having their wicking beds their compost piles, their natural sequence farming things and all that, and all the kids that had come in were really excited by it, all lumping to get worms into it. And I find kids pick up the stuff quicker than anybody, and so I was going to say, Michael Jeffrey's Source for Life program is, is one thing I'd be saying, yes, um, the education minister put that in. It's, it's scary when you meet kids now who don't do biology, geology, uh, chemistry or in, any of those subjects and they're the things that you know, we all need to learn about from the soil up. But I think the first thing I'd be doing is bringing in the, I don't know which minister it is, but I'd be saying right now Woolworths and all those supermarkets have got to have a label up there that says cents per kilo nutrients, not cents per kilo of product. And once we do that, we've talked about it today, about um, the Brixley or the testing of the nutrient density of food can be done, and if we bring that in, to me, that'd just flip it all because then people see that a, a carrot's got uh, used to have 20,000 parts per million of carotene in it, and if now a lot of the one dollar ones have got 80 parts in there. And you talk about the, the people not being able to afford it. If I go in and see a carrot that's got 80 parts for a dollar or one that's got 20,000 for three dollars, then I can't afford to buy that one. Mm. Mm. Okay. Okay, I think Rachel. I just got voted in, oh. Minister. Yeah. <laughs> Rachel, so apart from Silent Spring on the curriculum again, what else yeah. would you do? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely that. Um, okay, well, I still think there's a lot of people, I think there's some conventional farmers there who are really would love to get into this space and I think they just need a bit of financial assistance. So I'm, I'm going to go for the biodiversity credits and the carbon credits and I, I did see a fantastic interview with Terry McCosker and John Anderson that Terry basically said that the government are pretty much there, there's a couple of little sticking points that are minor that need to be overcome before that, that can really, they can really get behind that. And I don't know how you measure the biodiversity things, but that seems to me that if people can have the encouragement of, of the biodiversity, um, uh, yeah, I have a clue how you do that, but someone would know. 
Well, ANU is measuring it right now, I think, right. for biodiversity pilots in each state. So, so that measurement is happening. It's, I think the question is who pays? And maybe it's the private markets, maybe it's capital, maybe it's government, maybe it's a bit of both. But mm -hmm. very interesting question. Charlie, your minister for minister. a day. So I reckon I'd combine the Ag Department with the Health Department. Oh, that's a good idea. Make it, make it a super department. Well, just make it a normal department, that's what it should be. And I reckon probably uh, there's lots of things one might do, but one would be labelling. I would actually change the labelling system to say uh, organic food is food and the other stuff is chemical food and actually make that the identifier when people go into a shop. And that puts the emphasis on the farmers to, to identify, prove, that they're not using chemical, and that's a that's a multi that's a many-headed beast in itself because one might be farming organically and there's groundwater, chemical, and all sorts of things. But anyway, the, the principle's there, um, and make that organic food. Let's identify that as food because that's what it used to be, and we've just got caught up in this whole you know, shit fight with with labelling, which is you know another conversation. But I think that's that that might have some impact. I think. And can at, you at both ends, sorry. So farming in, how they identify that food, how they're growing it, consumers inform decision making. And can anyone see, as yeah, so one final question, um, can anyone see a role, uh, there's a lot more corporates coming into farming now in Australia, uh, big corporations, big super funds. Can anyone see a role for those big organisations to change some of the space for farming systems? For them to become regenerative egg farmers, you say? Yes, or, or for, for some sort of, I mean, I know Andrew Ward's talking about farmers' mutuals, you know, how can firm, uh, farming companies benefit each other, I guess, is the question. Is it, has anyone thought about that? Well, I'm getting a lot of younger people coming out now. There's a few younger people here today who are really excited about getting into agriculture. Mm. And there's all these methodologies of how to take, I hate think saying this, but you know, older people, <laughs> and, and, and how to hand the farm on when our time does come in another 30 years' time. And, <laughs> 40. Um, but yeah, so there's those models that are coming up, and a lot of that. And I think that's good. But I think there's a lot of young people out there that they're a different mindset. When I was growing up, you you know you had to be a, a self-made millionaire by the time you were 30 to be successful. You had to have so many cattle to be successful. All those sort of things. It was all money-based. And I've had to break out of that. And I, I'd see younger people. It's just not in their in their thinking. They're thinking, what's the point of having a lot of money if the planet cooks and blows up? And in fact, the reason we're all sitting here is from we sat down at um, New Year and and did the same question. Uh, what do we see I did hear that. The, the world's going to be like? And most people at New Year are going, oh, I'm going to be eat less, do more yoga and all that sort of stuff. But we were looking at what's going to be in the future and we're sort of thinking, well, China's not going to go ahead because their, their leaders are not taking the people with them and all that. But anyhow, we went around and all us Regen people were all very positive. Mm. And then we got to a young girl who just come out of uh, university and she said, well, if we don't figure out how to live on Mars, 
then you know we're all cooked. And that shocked us because that's when we went, wow, they don't have, she's not seen hope. And that's what we're all about really is, is showing there is a way and not only is there a way of getting healthier food, but in the process of doing that we increase um, biodiversity and save all the things. And I've had some exciting things in the last week where some of the advocacy groups that are looking at saving the white nose bilby are saying, well, actually, there's no point in doing that if we're not feeding everybody and everybody's getting sick. So let's look at how our organisation can now in, embrace Regen Ag mm. into making the world a better place that everything survives. But we know the only species that's likely to disappear very quickly is us if we don't change. Yes. yes. I think a great note to end on, hope, rather than uh, anything else. Uh, I'd like you to thank the panel for their wonderful contribution. And thanks to Land and Market for inviting me to moderate this conversation. It's been fantastic. Thank you. The Farming Matters Conference was brought to you by Land to Market Australia and our Ecological Outcome Verification. Through this verification, we help farmers both improve their land and link them through to consumers. You can join the process easily by going to the Land to Market Australia website. Thanks to all our conference sponsors and speakers, links to their details are provided in the episode show notes. To listen to other conference sessions, make sure to subscribe and to see videos of these podcasts, visit the Land to Market YouTube channel. For more information about upcoming events, check out our Facebook or webpage, landtomarket.com.au. I'm Rebecca Gorman. Thanks for listening.